Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The fundamental reason why we are establishing a trusting relationship with carers, because we can say that we're not attached to a system that they don't feel psychologically, you know, and emotionally safe within to talk about their own needs. Welcome to The Culture of Leadership. We have conversations that help you develop and become a more confident leader. Social entrepreneurs are not content just to give a fish or teach how to fish. They will not rest until they have revolutionised the fishing industry. These are the words of Bill Drayton, the man responsible for the rise of the phrase social entrepreneur. Today you'll meet Marcy McGowan. Marcy is the co-founder and CEO of a social enterprise called The Hatch Project. With the help of her brother Nathan, they're working to revolutionise the foster care system in Australia. And foster carers are the vital link in the revolution. This is a Cultural Leadership Podcast. I'm Brendan Rogers. Sit back and enjoy my conversation with Marcy. Okay, so Hatch Project is, you know, I struggle with this. I feel like I struggled this the first time we spoke about it. Hatch Project started really a few years ago, a couple of years ago, with the opportunity to create change in the lives of some of the most disadvantaged in our country, I mean, really around the world, kids in foster care would be considered, you know, extremely disadvantaged. And certainly in Australia, when you look at the issues that we were seeking to sort of respond to around intergenerational trauma and abuse and institutionalisation, these kids are definitely some of the most disadvantaged kids in Australia. And they're they're, they're in our backyard. There's 46,000 of them in Australia. So it started with, with an opportunity from my brother who said, I want to I donate funds to this cause. He was off the back of his own successful sort of product development and entrepreneurship journey and kind of had that bug, I think, and then said, I really want to do purpose-driven work. I want to contribute to something purpose-driven. You come from a purpose-driven field. I was newly out of, fresh burnt out of 17 years of working in the New South Wales out of home care sector myself, taking a little break and uh, vowing never to return to it. And then, um, you know, he had this idea and he said, let's think creatively, let's think laterally, let's use innovation to consider 
new and different ways to respond to these incredibly complex challenges that lead to these intergenerational cycles for these kids. And so I think it was the, probably the creativity and this incredible opportunity that made me go, oh, yeah, well, I should probably jump on that and we should, we should do that together. And Hatch Project, it really was a, it was a working title and it's stuck because we haven't come up with a better one. <laughs> and, uh, and, it, and it was broad, a broad title because we really didn't know when we started this project where we would end up. You know, we talked about this idea of developing some kind of product I didn't even know what that language meant at that time because that's not the language a social worker uses. But we talked about, but we had no idea what that product would be. Probably other words for that would be a response, a solution. We kind of stay away from that word a little bit, but certainly a response to a problem. You know, we intentionally used methodologies that really called to to look at the, the problem very broadly to begin with. And so we mapped out you know, this complex problem, you know, asking the question, why? Why do kids in care, and and probably the line we would use is, why do kids in care have such poor outcomes? And so then, that's the problem that the Hatch Project is trying to solve? Yeah, yeah. Certainly the question that I ideate on and I diverge around, you know, that big why. It's a big question. It's a big question. And I already had so many thoughts on this from my time of working in the sector. And I just, just for some context around that, I worked across five non-government organisations in New South Wales. And yeah, some, some of them very large, like Wesley Mission, or and then some of them very small as well. And I worked across sort of caseworker roles and team leader roles, you know, um, some management positions. But particularly the last 10 years, most of my work was around foster carer recruitment and uh, support training authorization. So that was probably the primary space I actually worked in in my time in the sector. So I already came in with, yeah, lots of ideas, perhaps lots of assumptions <laughs> around what these problems were. And when I say we went through a mapping process, it's probably figurative more than it is literal because if I was to draw this actual map, which I do plan to still do, by the way, that's been needed so many times. I mean, you I need a big wall, Marcy. I don't know if you've <laughs> ever seen a systems map in in complex issues, but they are just like you're talking thousands of interlocking loops. So, for us it really involved who are the key players? You know, you've got government in New South in the New South Wales space when it comes to foster care, your non-government organizations play a primary role. Different to other states, each Australian jurisdiction um, works very differently. But in New South Wales, I'm going to say approximately 80% of foster care is provided by the non- non-government sector. So this just means that government does the child protection stuff. You know, they remove the kids and then they need somewhere for the kids to live. And, you know, based on, in fact, it's a conversation that's happening right now in the community a lot, that the history of how this all came to be really, it spans like hundreds of years, because if you look at orphanages, they were run by charities. And so that's really just moved on, you know, into into the into the 50s and, and the 60s even, before I think the 70s formal child protection services came into play. And we also started looking at this shift from institutionalised care into family-based care. And 
along those lines, you've got family-based care being provided by foster carers and non-government organisations and charities being the ones that kind of support those placements. Can I just put something yeah. into context? Yeah, yeah. You mentioned 46,000 children needing yeah, care. Yeah, How many foster carers are there yes. in New South Wales? Very good question. So there's currently um, so 46,000 children in Australia. In Australia. And we have, I think it's approximately 9,000 foster families. In Australia. In Australia. So you can either ask questions we about We don't have to be that smart at mathematics that, to work out works, there's a shortage. Or I can offer, yes, sort of some ideas on, on what, what is happening there and how that's working, which is pretty simply that there are many children in foster care that are not being accommodated within a foster family. So that means... What happens? Yeah, so they... What are the options for those? Yep. So there's residential facilities. What's so, that like? So that is a... <laughs> they've just changed names a lot, so I'm trying to figure out what they might be called now. But they're a group home and they're staffed usually by youth workers who are on roster 24-7. In fact, my job started as a youth worker in a home like that. And yeah, the, <laughs> there's always been a goal to get rid of, because that that leans much more towards that institutionalized model of care, right? I mean, they're small group homes. You, you're probably talking, you know, a handful of kids, but... What's a handful? Um, listen, the ones that I worked in, we had probably three or four kids in the home, very, very high needs kids, very, because the kids that end up in these homes, they end up there because we can't, there's no other placement for them. So we can't match them with foster carers and we can't match them with foster carers because, well, we don't have enough foster carers, but also because foster carers aren't in a position to provide the type of care that these kids need, you know, and these kids on paper, I, you know, you, <laughs> there's no judgment there. Give us an example of there. the type of care that a child could need that is determined as high needs. So th there might be high-level physical needs and disabilities, but usually you're talking about social, emotional, and behavioural needs. So children in foster care usually will have some kind of disordered attachment sort of system that's based on attachment theory. So they didn't have those you know, safe and secure and nurturing relationships with their primary caregivers, their parents, which means their the whole model and understanding of how relationships operate is really not formed. It's really off. Yeah, yeah. So um, their their entire relationship, all their relationships, can look quite dysfunctional. Also, um, trauma, and we know that kids that are in foster care haven't been removed based on you know small concerns. Um, you know, the Department of Community Services has a process whereby they remove children when when it's deemed that the likelihood of harm to them is very, very high. So it's either already happened or it's likely to happen. You get kids that have been in these environments for many, many years with, you know, many, many, many um, like allegations or risk of harm reports made that aren't removed yet because it's a really hard position to, to understand when to remove that kid. Mm -hmm. We know when that kid is removed, you're actually creating a trauma 
in itself that really is undoable. So it's not taken lightly. We know that children are better with their biological families wherever possible. The sad reality is there are some kids that if left... Sorry mm, to cut you off, but is that that really the case? Like, is Mm. that what the data says? I guess what Mm. I'm thinking about Mm. is like, I go to the number 46,000 in care, and then with the definition of removing a child or children from their family, that's a massive call, I get that. But there's an unimaginable amount of young people that are in situations that would not be what we would maybe determine based on our own upbringings as model upbringing environment opportunities. Yes. Yes, that is my understanding. There's a there's a huge and I've never worked for child protection or for government, but my understanding is they only remove a portion of the kids that need to be removed because they don't have the capacity in the system to do so. I mean, I've got to really be honest and acknowledge the conflicts that I have around all of this. And there's there's several reasons why when it comes to removals. Firstly, I have seen the impact firsthand of children who do not get to live with their biological families. You have to, you know, to some extent. And it's hard when the foster care system was designed as the solution to the problem. And yet our data and evidence suggest that it's not a solution. In fact, I believe there is some research that highlights that kids that are removed on the whole, like talking broad, you know, in broad terms, don't have better outcomes than the kids that stayed with their families. And that has to do with the brokenness of the system, ultimately. Now, when you start thinking that broadly, you know, systemically, you sit there and you kind of go, you know, why why are we removing these kids? However, then it just takes one more horrific story that'll hit the media, you know, or talking to anyone who works in child protection to say what they've seen. And you go, okay, so in my view, in my belief system, don't actually have a lot to do with the parents themselves because they've been part of a system as well. But these kids have to be removed and they have to be given an opportunity for safety and nurture and care. And then you have the foster care system. But there are many that apparently, yeah, aren't removed. And and when you're looking at these kids that come into the system, whether it be at birth, they're removed, or years and years later, often children will have experienced trauma. And, and in this field, we, we talk about developmental trauma, which, again, I am no neuroscience, but it is um, different, for example, to post-traumatic stress disorder because it refers to the developing brain. And it refers to this idea that if these, so these kids are in constant fight flight mode for their survival, their brain is developing differently. It's wired differently. And so developmental trauma, which is still a field that's fairly new, 10, 20 years, I'd say. And what we understand is that we're talking about a different brain. And so when kids come into care, And when carers charged with the responsibility of nurturing and loving and caring these kids, it really highlights how enormous that job is when you're talking about neural networks, you know. So that's developmental trauma and kids coming into care have these attachment dysregulations and this developmental trauma and a host of other problems and needs. And all of that culminates into some fairly difficult behaviour 
and certainly in those group homes, looping it back into where we started there, is that they these kids have very antisocial behaviours, high risk-taking behaviours. There was a stat, I really don't want to misquote it, but it's kind of burnt in a little bit, I remember, because the kids that were in the, the refuge, we used to call it a refuge at the time, the group home that I worked at originally, that service provider was contracted to really take your highest needs kids. So when we couldn't find, when government couldn't find placement anywhere else, they'd end up with this service. And so these kids, I think the stats were something like one in four would actually die before the age of 20 or 25, it may have been. And I know already of two. Through taking their own life? So overdose, taking their own life. Yeah, I mean, various, various means. And I know of two, I only worked there for eight, nine months. I probably only worked with a handful of kids. And I know of two that had passed away, certainly within that time frame. And I guess then I don't know where to go with the behavior piece because, you know, there could be, you know, I could tell you multiple stories in terms of what these kids may say or do, but it's not pretty and it's really difficult. Um, Let's bring it back to, say, there's kids out there, young people out there who have high needs and and varying degrees of needs but they're in group homes, yes. let's say, or, or a percentage of them are. Yes. There's still a number left. What What are the other yeah. yep. options yep. for care? Good question. There's this term yep. called alternative care arrangement that yeah. I hear. What does that look like? <laughs> it's very, very ambiguous intentionally. Alternative care arrangement, I think, must just r- refer to any arrangement that doesn't involve a child being in a traditional foster care home. Um, so, And if it's not a residential setting or a group home, it probably looks like a hotel or maybe, I think, uh, I've been out of the system for a, for a few years now, but certainly there were scenarios where a house might be rented for a sibling group, which then again looks a bit like a group home, but it might be for the distinct purpose of keeping siblings together. But again, that you'd have a more youth worker model there mm, as opposed carers to carers. Carers coming through rotation. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So very different attachment there as well as your primary 24-7 caregiver. Um, so that's, yeah, I mean, I mean, listen, I, mean, I guess if you reduce it all the way back, you've got, you know, people in government and in caseworkers in child protection that are removing kids based on, you know, their thresholds telling you they need to be taken and then there's nowhere for them to go. What do you do? You know, uh, and certainly I know back in the day, there were stacks of stories from people that I knew personally or through the system where kids would be dropped off in these sort of unauthorised foster carer type placements, um, you know, people, you know, that who, where can these kids, these kids go and families saying, I'll take a kid or I know this person or from this person or, or whatever, but you have to find somewhere for them to live. I mean, the government is the legal parent, but they're not, they're not a house. <laughs> so you've got to put them somewhere. You know, and so that's the problems they're trying to resolve. Um, Maybe there yeah. is some method to the madness of some of these children being housed in Parliament House for a period of time, and oh. some of these people who are making decisions can see what's actually happening on the ground. Anyway, that's wouldn't that maybe be interesting? Different, that would close the gap a for a second. Res- emotional response I have yes. to that, but yes. let, let's let's bring this back. Yes. You've, you've painted a really good, sad but truthful picture mm. around some of the context of this. Mm. Let's bring it back to. The Hatch Project, Project. this social enterprise that you're leading and your brother has um, had a, still has an involvement in and has provided the funding uh, at this point in time. What what does the Hatch Project, what does success 
look mm. like in this mm. future space yep. for the Hatch Project? Yep. So success looks like better outcomes for kids in foster care. Tell us what better outcomes look like. Yeah. Well, let's start with the intergenerational cycle of kids being in care. So if you're in foster care, you've got an X percentage likelihood that one of your parents was in foster care. I want to say a recent stat is something like one in three, one in three or one in four kids who is currently in care had a, had a parent that was a part of the child protection system themselves. These cycles are very evident. Repeatable. Yes. And this was, this was one of my first tastes of the foster care system. I was 22, 23 years old, very eager. Myself, I came from a quite a privileged upbringing in terms of, you know, very loving, secure, um, emotionally available parents, lots of great opportunities in my life. And I come into this system eager. I'm going to change the world. And I get my first caseload of kids and I have a three-year-old on my caseload. And She's been brought into care because, well, many, many reasons, but I remember she'd been removed from her mum who'd tried to um, kill herself, um, commit suicide in the shower and, and, and do that with her baby in her arms. And that was, that was the reason for removal, but there was lots of obviously other issues involved. So I see this stuff in the file as a fairly, <laughs> you know, <laughs> naive, um, you know, and I think to myself, who is this mum? And you can't help but make judgments about mum. But it's not long before I meet mum because in the foster care system, when you're a caseworker and you're working with a child on your caseload, you're also quite involved with their parents. Um, so, and you do contact visits with their parents. So I meet mum and gosh, from the second I saw mum, I've never seen anyone like her. She, she had a shaved head and she was covered in cigarette burns like head to toe. And she had so many scars on her neck that were like scarring on top of scarring. And from the second I looked at this woman, and she was only 19, so she was 16 when she gave birth, I kind of, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, and not really that much younger than me at the time either. Um, you know, you're obviously saying what's, what's happened. And then I soon and very quickly learned that she was part of the foster care system herself. Most of that scarring was um, self-harm related, but also that possibly the father of her daughter on my caseload was actually her own father. And then you sit there and you're thinking, who is this man? <laughs> who is he, you know, to do this to her? And then, of course, I learned that he was in care himself. He was in an um, orphanage. This very early memory just or experience really solidified systems for me. I could not unsee systems ever. And these intergenerational cycles, what it means is we don't have the luxury of blaming somebody or something. These problems are much, much bigger. And one of our goals would be, or one of our, our ultimate, ultimate missions would be to have kids, the current kids that are in care, that they don't, they don't go on to have kids that are in care. So that's something that's possibly measurable into the future too. Other outcomes would look, so, so far as better outcomes for kids in care, well, based on the current statistic in New South Wales that I think it's 50% of care leavers, so that's that's um, 18 years, the care leaving age has just changed to 21, yep. but up until recently it was 18. 50, in New South Wales. In New South Wales. 
50% of care leavers will have had a child, be in jail, or be homeless within one year of leaving care. So if you're looking at those statistics, and I'd just like to highlight right now how shocking those statistics are. Absolutely. And the public does not really know the full extent of what we're talking about here, even though they are published, you know, statistics, but it takes a bit to actually find them and, um, you know, publish them in a good way. But um, in a way I mean, that's this is outstanding. The, yeah. This is part of the challenge for various enterprises out there, but particularly the Hatch Project yeah. is, is getting information out for people, the general public to see. Yeah. Because I know as a, again, a foster yeah. carer, having just conversations with people that aren't in that system and know about it, but don't yeah. really know about it. They're absolutely astounded by some yeah. of the information that they start to, and, and that's just yeah. them asking questions because they're yeah. interested. And it's like, and there is, there's a real <laughs> dismay and like, wow, I have, have no idea. So that gives me hope that mm. the majority of, and, and not that I have a yeah, question yeah. this, but the majority of people in society, yeah. and let's talk New South Wales and Australia, yeah. like they want to see these yes. better outcomes. Yes. Um, I guess there's a lot of people going through society very naive about the reality yes. of some of these things yes. that you've just shared. And this is this is the challenge that you have, yeah. isn't it, as a social entrepreneur yeah. leader? A challenge a social and an opportunity. A challenge and an opportunity. Yeah. Why, you mentioned earlier, like 17 mm. years in yes. the out-of-home care yes. space, and yes. you said jaded. Yes. What yeah. makes you think that you can, you and yeah. Nathan, to yeah. start with, can make this change that's yeah. needed? Gosh, that's a really good question because I've changed probably in terms of how I can respond to that authentically. Because when we started, I needed a job <laughs> and it was an exciting opportunity. There was part of me that wanted to prove my, you know, the criticizers of me wrong because I actually left the system when I was made redundant, which is a very, there's no one who's redundant in this system, <laughs> obviously. And that was, yeah, that had a that had a lot more to do with not being valued or, or maybe being too disruptive. Perhaps there's several versions of how that looked. And that was quite a traumatic experience for me for various reasons. Now, certainly in hindsight, gosh, I'm glad the whole thing happened because I was jaded and I was exhausted and I was burnt out and I probably couldn't see anything positive at all left in the system. So I probably wasn't producing very good work either. But I'm really glad that that happened. And so at that very initial point, it was kind of like, oh, look, look what I get to sort of do and achieve now, you know. And it was in terms of like, will we be successful? Like, I'll be really honest. I'm glad Nathan's not here, you know, he'll probably listen. I'm sitting there going, we've got to take a stab. Now, Nathan, with his product lens, my brother, you know, who has created a product, he kind of says, you can do anything. It's just how you go about doing it. And I'm sitting there, you don't know what you're talking about. You worked in financial technology. You know, it just doesn't compare to the complexity of intergenerational cycles of abuse, trauma, and institutionalization. And um, Mind you, financial technology or financial services yes. has a fair bit of regulation 
requirements around. I have around. been told Maybe that there the, is a lot of complexity, including someone Maybe I that's met. where he thinks, well, I can work the financial regulation side for the positive and I can work within the regulation, extreme regulation within the I've since home been care. told that actually it's a very complex, it was a very complex problem that he, he sure. was part of solving as well. I'm sure but he's I making just, it more complex yes, even. <laughs> well, and, uh, that's it. And, uh, but I was just like, you know, you're kidding yourself. You just don't know what you're talking about, you know. But, but uh, what an opportunity to think, laterally about things. I It was not how I was, I'll say, allowed to think when I worked in the system. It wasn't something that was appreciated in terms of the, the system itself is is heavily regulated. It, it survives based on control. Children in foster care are government property and responsibility. Reputational risk is at an all-time high. If you can imagine, the public knowing that something had happened to a child in care. These are Australia's kids, yes. Mm. So reputational damage and risk is huge. And and they survive, the system survives by by creating more guardrails and more regulations. And so what what that results in is a system that, that operates, its status quo is very rigid, very tightly held and very controlled. There's no room to kind of look at problems and to think innovatively about how we might solve them because there's a way that things have to be done to keep things safe, essentially. So that's about risk, a risk aversion. And so when I got this opportunity to kind of think, oh my gosh, I can kind of let my naturally fairly divergent, you know, and neurodiverse brain just go, oh, let's do it, particularly with all the knowledge that I brought in, you know, and just, let's do this, let's do this, let's do this. That was just such an exciting opportunity as well. But back to the, you know, at the start, it was a, a pipe dream. Can we, can, we, can we change things? Can we make a difference? And I, I think maybe three years on, I'm a little more convinced <laughs> just based on the trajectory well, of the project. It may not be the ultimate outcome. You're not going to do that yes. in three years, but... There's yes. already a difference being made. And that's been part of the mindset change too. I think when I looked at that North Star goal, you know, I think, yeah, I think we can make a difference there too. But this idea that you're making differences today, I need to try to convince some funder out there that that's worth funding too. <laughs> differences today, because most people want also, they invest in the long-term goal, which is a generation away at least. So it's funny, the methods that we're using have a lot to do with my newly found confidence in what we're doing. This idea that my brother said right at the start, if you have a North Star and objective and if you continue to pivot and move so that your compass keeps facing true north, you can't be wrong. Very arrogant. You can't be wrong. And I have actually experienced what he's talking about now. It's about movement. It's about change. And the big thing with that analogy, though, that I've learnt, and this is nice because it's going to loop back to where I know we really need to go, the big thing is what is your compass? And so in our case, we actually created a compass. So our true north is better outcomes for children in foster care. Based on our broad system map, we um, decided that amongst all the opportunities to cause change, the foster carer, foster child relationship was a massive opportunity and fundamental. I won't even go into 
you know, the attachment science in terms of going, you've got a kid who comes into foster care and then they live with their, with more parents 24-7, what role that those parents have in the life of that child. That's a leverage point if I've ever seen one. It's not working. Based on, based on outcomes, again, broadly, and I, I don't want to tarnish every carer or no, I'm not even talking about carers, every placement and the whole system with that brush because absolutely you get some great results, you get some amazing relationships, but you cannot ignore those broader outcomes. And so you go, well, what's happening? You know, you're looking at the foster carer and you go, well, if, if, we're, if we're all seeing, if, if this is an opportunity, if we all believe this is an opportunity, that's arguable, by the way, in the bureaucratic world of foster care, but I think most people with common sense will see that it's a huge opportunity and it's not coming to fruition. Why is it not coming to fruition? Something's going wrong with that relationship with the carer and the child. And the system. And the system. It's not the carer. It is the system. And it's... Although, okay, it's not the carer, yeah, but yeah. let's just say, let's, let's, look at, yeah. let's look at the foster carer role as being employed. Let's say, you know, there's a, there's a payment involved, but it's like anybody in a role, right? You get some really good performers yeah. and you get some people that in the eyes of their organization, yes. they should be redundant, let's yes. say. Again, not yes. to be disrespectful. Not to you. at all. <laughs> I've been redundant as well. Yes. Different reasons, yeah, but yeah, it yeah. is what it is. Yeah. So to me, the carer has to, I 100% yeah. agree, which is why I'm so passionate yes. about you yes. and what you're doing in Nathan and the Hatch yes. Project. But the yeah. foster, the quality yes. of the foster yes. carer is ab- absolutely yeah. critical and you will get diverse levels of yes. carer. So let me ask you this you question. Are right. You what are right. What does yes. an awesome foster carer look like yes. in your experience? Yes. What do they look like? What are they? Oh my and, gosh. I don't, and I don't mean like, <laughs> hey, Brendan, they look like me. I mean, like, what are those no skills and attributes? Me. Do you know no one has asked me that? And I'll answer. This is why answer we are tapping question. into the yeah. most important leadership matters on the culture of leadership. We are stuff that people aren't thinking about. Do you know? People ask me what makes a good foster carer, and I tell them um, based on some very interesting research that once came out of California around um, these patterns that they found in foster carers that then led to better outcomes, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And it had to do with a whole stack of, you know, um, being not what necessarily what you think, being flexible and open-minded and um, up for an adventure. Often there might have been some kind of faith-based belief or um, teachers, often they were teachers or health professionals or there was all this data that came out in terms of, you know, the patterns that existed in the best foster carers or the most successful foster carers. And that's probably impacted maybe my thinking around what I think a good foster carer is. But no one has outright asked me what I think a good carer is in my now 20 years of working with hundreds of foster carers. And in true form, I don't even know if I could answer that question without further thought. Well, let, let me put you, I mean, yeah. I'm putting you in a position here, but you were in foster care recruitment for quite yeah. a period of time. Yeah. Right. There were things that you were looking for. Yes. You may have blocked yes. some yes. of that thing out from yes. scarring, but ultimately, if you look at yes. that, there's got to be some things yes. in that no, thank process you. That's, that you're yeah. thinking, well, this is sort of what I'm looking for. Thank and you. also, yeah, this is what I'm not looking for. That's a for me to think about it. Yeah, that is a good way. Okay. So when you put it like that, I want to have an open conversation. I want to know from the start that we can talk about important things. I guess I'm talking about transparency. And that's a lot to ask in and of itself. When you think about the position, you've been in it. 
that power imbalance that exists when you're a foster carer applicant and you sit down with your assessor and they open up your entire life and dissect it. That's a lot I'm asking for, but I want to, I think I'm getting the most confidence when I'm getting those applicants that are just bringing everything to the table and not hiding anything. But then in saying that, just because you haven't been able to bring everything to the table doesn't mean that you're not going to be a great foster carer. But that's certainly like one of my cues that I'm like, oh, if we can have this conversation now, you're going to be, this is going to be really important to set you up for the relationship you're going to need to have with your caseworkers. It probably denotes confidence and it probably denotes a strong sense of self, I imagine, and a lot of self, self-reflective capacity that I'm going to throw that one right up the top. That to me yeah. falls in this bucket of this big bucket of emotional intelligence and the, the level of human skill that yes. you have. Big bucket. Yes. Big bucket. But in my own experience yeah. and my wife yes. together, yes. like if we didn't have that level of intelligence ten- okay. around yeah, yeah. our yeah. emotions, who yes. we are, you know, some ability to self-regulate ourselves because, I mean, there's so many, as we know, again, the, the Hatch Project is born for it. There's so many challenges in the system. I want to reinforce this. We had such fantastic opportunities to meet yes. so many great people, yes. both in the foster, their foster carers yes. and so many great people that are working in the system. Yes. And I'm just thinking about a lady I, I met yeah. just the other night when I emceed an event and she yeah. worked for DCJ. And I'm like, okay, Brendan, don't judge that because not all people that work at yes. DCJ are, yeah. are the type of people that you've, yes. but they're all coming from a good place. They're working yeah. in a system that they don't know how to change. They maybe don't have the skills that you have, that Nathan has. Yeah. They also don't have the impetus potentially yes. to to and the appetite to try and no. create that change. No. But I, I guess back to my point, like we just have to bring everything to the table, like you said, for the yes. child. Yes. And we've only been carers for a short amount of time compared to some of these very yes. experienced carers, but we love children. We love to make an impact in a young person's life. My yes. life has been about coaching. So I see that as an opportunity to yes. coach young people yes. who have had varied upbringings yes. and the ability to then be curious about that, not judgmental, which to yes. me comes into the emotional intelligence yes. side. If you've got that as a foundation yes. and you and you want to be able to connect with them and give yes. them all the love in the world that you can, like that's what you need. Yes. Then you link that back to, I mean, as recently as this yeah. morning in some of the preparation for this, you know, talking to my wife and you know, the little girl we have in our care now and reading, learning some of the history of mum, all these things you talk about. Mm being a product of the system yes. has intellectual difficulties, yes. but also made some decisions along the way that was having drug parties whilst little baby was in, in her womb and making sexual choices, which meant that she had various STD. Like there's all that stuff. It's like, how the fuck do you change that? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah where, do you, where do you start? Absolutely. Well, I tell you what, your role as a foster carer has to be, I mean, as you know, <laughs> my thoughts on this. Um, hence Hatch Project, probably aside from doing that really early intervention um, community work where kids don't need to be removed, and I think we're a long way off that mm. for lots of reasons, but given that foster care has to exist, being the foster carer has to be the most powerful place that you can create uh, or you can provide opportunity and you can make a difference. It just It just has to be. And it's closely followed, I think, by people like teachers, probably therapists as well, Mm, caseworkers, maybe to some extent, maybe not. We're talking about relationships and we're talking about time, you know, those hard yards. 
it's the 24-7. It's the who's there at night time when you're sick. You know, you're, you're it, investing in a child or children. Yes. And whether that child is your own, you're investing yes. in them. And then this is another opportunity that people make a decision. You're investing in a child or children yes. that aren't your own by blood, but you have to treat them as yes. your own. You have to love them yeah. their own. And yeah. you need to, That that is challenging because you, again, you don't, you don't, it's not like a child comes into care and then you get a full rap sheet of yes. like all their past experiences. Like yeah. some of that stuff will only present over time through, yes. I, I guess what I can only determine is, you know, non-scientific weird behavior. And you yeah, think, yeah. well, shivers, where is that? Yeah. Come from. Yeah. yeah. Again, so many, so many aspects. It's just, yeah, I, I like my hat goes off to you and, and Nathan and, and what you're trying to do and, and whatever my involvement looks like in the future. Mm. But what, before I get to. Well, can I to, just say, our hat goes off to you. We're not carers. And, no, you're and, not. And, but you we're know, all part of the system, we are, right? And we we're are, all doing our bid. We are. And yes. what you've done, what yes. you're building, and what you've already built, yes. there's already a community. Yes. Of carers, and that that group is is more than a hundred people at yes. the moment, from what I understand. Yeah, and there's it's not just a hundred who have signed up for the platform. There's there's fifty, sixty, seventy of those that are actively engaging yes. in the platform, and there's goals to grow that, improve that. Yeah. So it's like there's an army building, and, and you're the sort of chief corporal or whatever we yes. call you. Yes, and that's the sort of thing. While I can't put up my hand and be a foster carer for various reasons, um, mostly because it takes a very, very special motivation and um, you know you got it because you put up your hand and you say, I want to be a foster carer. <laughs> so you've got that. And so I, I just wanted to note just one more thing about what you said about emotional intelligence and what makes a great foster carer because I think you're definitely touching on something really, really important, even if I haven't framed it necessarily as emotional intelligence. I often think about it in terms of being really open and flexible in your thinking. The way you talk about your version of it is that you also think about things quite systemically. So you're, you're, um, if there's, if you meet a caseworker or a person, your go-to is not to say that they're the problem. You know that the problem's extend beyond that. I think that is not only a way of thinking about things that minimizes, you know, um, that you're, you're going to end up feeling frustrated and angry and, you know, disempowered. In fact, I think it's a very empowering position because when you look at things in that way, and particularly your version of, I mean, seeing the good in people as well, right? When you see good and you believe good intention and then when That's you see things that, that are so being important. done, you know, and that you 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 make an interpretation as to what just happened and why it happened. And we have so many carers in the system that are so angry and it is for very, very good reason. But that piece that you're talking about in terms of emotional intelligence or just being able to see outside of that hurt and the grief and the and the shame and that, you know, I just want to really make sure that I'm giving, I'm acknowledging that there are carers that have been doing this for decades and they've had hundreds of children actually. And they feel like victims at the hands of the system because they genuinely are victims at the hands of, of the system. So I, I want to make sure that I acknowledge that. However, a victim mentality might cause, you know, anyone to, to remain very stuck as opposed to that mentality that says, hang on, okay, this is all wrong. This is very problematic, but 
I am part of this system, which means I have the capacity to do something about it. That is a powerful mindset to bring in as a foster carer. And that's something, gosh, I really think could be a game changer in terms of educational mindset or growth opportunities with other carers. Because I don't think innately everybody has this or due to experiences in life or whatever it might be, right? So you and your wife, I think, have probably come in with with a really, really important, like whether it be you'd know more. Is it a skill set? Is it a is it a innate trait? I'm not sure that is beautifully aligned and matched with the role of foster caring, I think. And then of course there's all the other practical stuff and there's networks being, you know, strong networks and um, support mechanisms and self-care behaviors and all that being a really important part of part of the role too. So yeah, just wanted to highlight that and just make sure I close that off about what makes a great carer because it does have to do with maybe some of the work we want to do at Hatch Project and also looping it way back around to my analogy about the compass and the true north for Hatch Project and that we created a compass because what Hatch Project is, well, it's an online platform. It's just basic software that, you know, we use to conduct and facilitate a community. What that really is is it's a place for carers to talk and, well, it's a place for them to connect. That's the easy one because, you know, it's an um, online space um, which is exclusively for foster carers and kinship carers. So you can meet other carers in there, but the safety element has been a main objective of ours because we know that there's a lot of conversations that foster carers feel they are not allowed to have in the outside world, in their outside foster caring roles. And so that was a really important part of the environment, I guess, that we had to consider when we were both designing the tech aspects of it, but the culture, the values, you know, the mindsets that Nathan and I bring into it ourselves, you know, even some technical thoughts on how we might establish some of those mindsets on the platform and within this community. And so this community is now a place where carers are talking. And you know that you're in there. In fact, I think the greatest validation I have in terms of the product is that carers are engaged. Measuring engagement on this platform has been a big part of how we are measuring success. Members and, and are talking. It's, it's positive. Like there's talk. It's positive talk. Yes, there's elements here and there where there's a they yes. carers feel like they need to let yes. some steam off. Yes, and I get yes. that. And to me, no, no different to a disgruntled employee, right? They sort of got let some steam. At the end of the day, they haven't felt valued at yes. a certain point. It's, it's a bit like your own journey and my own yes. journey at some extent. At a certain stage, we haven't felt valued. Yes. We've got a bit annoyed, disgruntled. Yes. Maybe we haven't taken responsibility. Yes. We've sort of blamed others and things and not owned our journey enough. But this is the platform that you've created now is that there's some positive, lots of positive yes. conversation I'm seeing. Yes. Carers from the language I see are yes. starting to feel more empowered and safe yes. in that community, yes. which again is like that's that trust building, that's yes. that transparency, that yes. safeness, which allows them to feel like they've got support yes. around them to yes. talk, to use their voice more. Because yes. that's what's going to change stuff, right? That is what's going to change stuff. As we build this, this is going to drive well, the momentum we in the direction the we need. We need the voice. We actually Absolutely. have to have the care of voice because if you're talking about carer-related problems or issues such as in concrete terms, we talk about carer well-being being an issue. That's, that's 
really when we when we designed Hatch, we kind of said, well, you've got foster carers that are doing this primary job. It's a fundamental opportunity. Something must be going wrong because we've still got these poor outcomes. Mm-hmm. And then we started digging about a little bit and going, hang on, there are some big problems for foster carers, you know, and within the relationship. I mean, for one thing, placement breakdowns are common. So even when kids come into foster care and and they may be um, in been placed with the intention of it being a long-term placement, that means forever pretty much, that breaks down. Yeah, that, that it doesn't end up being a long-term placement. It breaks down. And some of these kids go through 10, 20, 30 placement breakdowns. So something's happening there that carers and placement breakdowns happen most of the time because carers say, I can't do it anymore. And so you go, well, well, why can't you, why can't you do it? You know, and this is where we come to understand that carers are ill-equipped, they are undervalued, they are under-resourced, they really have very little agency in terms of being the 24-7, you know, and the ones that are putting in the hard yards while the child's in the system, they're not given any genuine decision-making powers. So because because kids are property of the government, essentially parent legal responsibility to the government, and because government also holds all the funds, which are then distributed, you know, down to service providers who work with carers, you've got this sort of authority structure, you know, where you've got all the power at the top and then you've got the people on the bottom. And in this case, let's talk about carers who really are the ones that know what they need to care for that child well. You know, you know as a parent what you need to provide good care, but they have no agency to say it. And in fact, what we're beginning to see is that it's not only lack of agency to be able to say, I need respite care. Can I have respite care, please? Or I need some extra resources, or I need this, or I need help, or I need that. It's actually to the point that many carers feel that if they put up their hand and ask for help of any kind, they start to get blacklisted in terms of being difficult, being needy, being incompetent. And if I'm being really honest with you, I have to acknowledge that I saw this happen when I worked in the system in very subtle ways. We didn't know that that's what was happening as such, but I really validate carers in how they feel because I know what the back end looks like. They're blacklisted. Okay, we can all understand that term. Mm. But what does? how does somebody blacklist a carer. Well, what is I'll, that? I'll What's happening? A, give you a really obvious example. Mm. So we've got, you know, Sarah, the carer who's got two kids, you know, she's struggled um, for all the same reasons that carers might struggle. And she pops up and talks to a caseworker frequently um, because she needs some additional support or has a problem with this or contact can't happen today because child in her care is too unsettled or, listen, I mean, a hundred different reasons, right? And so she's the carer that's calling the caseworker that's getting, you know, a little bit difficult and maybe she's also a bit needy and maybe there's a determination that there's some mental health issues going on with Sarah or maybe whatever. So when Sarah comes and says, listen, I've got an extra bedroom, I can take another kid. We're not going to give Sarah another kid. I put that in black and white terms. There's an assessment process. There's blah, 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 blah. But she's kind of blacklisted herself. 
because she was very needy. <laughs> um, there's we all want simple as possible. Oh, we all want simple as possible. And 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 like you said, on the good intention side, you know, you could you could equally say, well, Sarah's already struggling. You know, we we don't want to give her more and make it harder for her and make it. But Sarah's jumping up and down saying, no, that's you've got the problem wrong. That wasn't the problem. I can take another child. Like I've got the room, and here we have thousands of children without homes but we're not going to give another one to Sarah. I mean, that's a really obvious example. I mean... Again, it's a good example because to me, my head goes straight and I'm pretty biased. It's a a leadership moment, right? It's like, well, hold on, let me be curious as a caseworker. And and again, they may not have the skills or the thinking around it, but let me be curious about that. I really need to have some genuine conversation with Sarah to understand where she's at and whatever. We can start to... Do you know what's really interesting about that? understand the nuances of the situation. And it still yeah. may be that, okay, the outcome is, hey, Sarah, we, we need to give you some more support from yes. a, hey, how are we looking at well-being yes. for yourself and things like that and bringing in the right people. Yes. Or actually, it's just it's just miscommunication and misunderstanding. Let's talk through that and, and boom, because it, it, it pains me. It absolutely pains me to think that even in a, in a system mm. like what we're talking about, mm. 46,000 children, and there's only X number of Foster care is this this massive gap when you do the mathematical equation that people can look at something and say, well, we're not going to be child-centered because Sarah's a pain in the ass. Yeah. Or potentially a pain in the ass. Yeah. Well, and and I mean, oh gosh, there's so many things that you've just, you've just raised and I I want to comment on, but it's like, you know, from the, from the start of saying that, you know, can, can, can social workers or caseworkers be curious? I actually think that innately the practice of social work is fairly open-minded and and very curious. It takes a much more systemic lens than, for example, a discipline like psychology or science, you know, which is fairly reductionist. Social work, in essence, kind of looks at systems broadly and tries to understand, and that's a very curious mindset. I think that, and many caseworkers or in the child protection and foster care systems have that social work background. I think many people come to this job with mindsets that have been that are sort of cultivated in that way and thinking that way. I wonder the best intentions. The best intentions always. You're not going into the job for money, that's for sure, or anything else. But I wonder that you hit this system and very quickly everything starts being unlearned because you have a huge caseload, you have time demands coming out your ears and you have the absolute priority, which is your box ticking. It is every, I cannot even begin to explain the box ticking. I started as a young caseworker with a pro, um, some forms, LAC, L-A-C, can't tell you what they stood for. But this was a way that we were going to be able to evidence and, you know, that that everything was in order. And I mean, I, I'm, I'm telling you like this hundreds, hundreds of sheets, I would print them off the um, printer. They were color coded depending on what I was talking to carers about. I, 23-year-old 20, Marcy, very little life experience, fairly naive, would go into your home now as you are, as an experienced parent and as a carer. And I'd sit there with my forms and I would start asking you questions. I'm not kidding. So, Michael, how many legumes a week does your child consume? How many books? And, and you know what I say? <laughs> Can you just define legumes? And then, and then what I would say, I'm so embarrassed because I don't know what a legume is because I've just read it off this form. <laughs> how many books are on your shelf? How many 
alcoholic beverages do you have a day? How many, you know, um, and you know, because you went through the original system where you were assessed, but I would do this on a monthly occasion or whatever. Um, then I would very much judge your home and gosh, if, if I, now that I'm a mum, a messy home, I would just have my children straight out removed, I think. <laughs> but I mean, 23-year-old me would come in with hordes of ticker boxes. I wasn't involved in a relationship. And if that was innately how I was sort of primed to be based on my social worker background or even who I am as a person, that was disarmed because I had, I had boxes to tick. And that was my one job for that job. And then when I got back to the office, I had to put that all into database systems and I had to write case notes. 80% plus of the role is administrative. And you've got people coming in that don't want an administrative job. They've come into social work. They want a relationship-based job. Which is you. That's it what is you me. <laughs> it is. It abs- it's most of us, actually. I even think, yeah. And so you... Talk about not playing to our strengths. It is. It, it's incredible the way that it gets flipped so quickly. And then there's the fear um, and the whole system's driven by fear because, you know, the fear for the foster carer is this negative and punitive retribution, at you know, from their caseworkers and their agencies who authorise them or, you know, the fear for me as a worker was performance management, you know, and then I wasn't going to be doing things properly. The fear for agencies, service providers of government, is that they don't provide their service adequately and then they cease to get funding. You know, the fear for government is this massive reputational risk. So you've got this fear-based system essentially, that is working in crisis mode constantly and it undermines authentic relationship. And that's not to say that intention wasn't always relationship. And I want to believe that too, that it always was a relationship if you go into this, into this work. But that's what is going so wrong with the whole system. You know, the curiosity, the, there's, no room, there's no room for this. We're not asking, we're keeping ourselves safe. Every single person. And when you look at that, what's interesting about that is that when you did training for the kids that are coming into your care, you were told that they are they live in fight, flight, freeze mode, and that those difficult behaviours that happen are about self-protective behaviours. And that as a result of these behaviours, you've got like fairly dysfunctional consequences. They, they don't have friends because they can't have a social relationship. They, you know, placements break down. They got a whole stack of dysfunctional outcomes uh, outcomes because of these dysfunctional behaviours. So you look at that little system that's happening with the child and that fight, fright, flight, freeze response, it happens in every sphere of the ecosystem. It happens at the child and it happens at the carer then it happens at the, the caseworker, it happens at the agency level, it happens at the broad system level. It is a fight, flight, freeze response that is happening on a mega level and the solution, <laughs> the response that is given to any problem at broad levels in this system is to create more regulation for safety. That, that is always the go-to. You can, you can look that up. You can have a look at the reforms and the inquiries and the investigations and the, the new legislations and the authorising systems for agencies who have to tick ridiculous amounts of boxes. This is how the system works and it undermines relationship. You mentioned broader system and I just want to specifically mention mm. the health system. Once mm. again, unbelievable people doing unbelievable work. Our experience has been that that fight, flight, freeze mentality 
is also massive specifically within the health. There's yeah, like imagine. checks on checks on checks I on. Imagine. And literally just, I don't need to go into the various scenarios we've had, but the checking and the checking and yep. then that person checking with the next level of checking. Yes. And you, you can literally sit in a hospital for a couple of hours waiting for these authorization levels to go through the process to eventually get back to somebody on the ground who's got to deliver what the decision is. Oh. It's mind-blowing. It is mind-blowing, yeah. And it's very time-consuming too. Very, very. I love sitting and with my wife spending mm. quality time in hospitals mm. for two hours. We love it. Um, <laughs> anyway, we try to look at the positive. <laughs> you mentioned funding, super important. Uh, you also talked about authenticity. Why, let me put those two together, why is Hatch Project not ever going to take government funding? Mm. Well, I'm not going to say never, <laughs> but uh, it, it is emerging. It's a good point. We should never say never. It, it's, it's not our North. My brother would sit here and say, that's not our North Star. It's uh, That's not the um, objective. However, Why is it important that it should, it's not the first port of call? Yeah. And what's becoming, yeah, yeah. So it, this is one of those unintended consequences. We, originally, it was because we were given this donation. We didn't know where the rest of our money had come. What we have come to now realise is that our independence from anything to do with this statutory care sector is powerful. It's also, I'm going to say borderline, you know, the fundamental reason why we are establishing a trusting relationship with carers. Because we can say that we're not attached to a system that they don't feel psychologically, you know, and emotionally safe within to s talk about their own needs. And we can say, well, we have no, we have no attachments to this system. Um, here, here is our agenda. It's foster care or wellbeing. Tell me I'm wrong. Tell me where you can see there's some other agenda and there's, there's no evidence of any other agenda. A lot because of our funding is not tied up, you know, with anything, you know, government related. Now, the reason why right now it, it's clear that we need to re remain independent is, well, so that we can keep developing this trusting relationship with carers and keep doing this work. And because government, it's unlikely that government is going to fund a mission or an objective to empower foster carers. This is, I know this is cynical and I hate that I have to say it, but in reality, when you have a system that is based on control and regulation, that is the antithesis of agency and empowerment. So this is not individual bad intention. This is survival. To survive, this system has to control. It has to. And therefore, carers having agency or having a say or having a voice risks that control. Because what if a carer pops up and says, well, I want to do it this way. I want to do it this way. No, 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 no. We can't have that. Something bad might happen to this kid. And that's our responsibility and that's our job. So an authentic, you know, agenda to empower carers and to give them a voice just totally is at total odds with the current operating system in very subtle, passive, cultural ways, to, you know, not ways that people are openly talking about a lot, but it's fairly evident when you start looking at it. And there have been, there is a current body within the sector that kind of takes that, that role of carer-related needs. But from, from where I stand and what I've been told, they can't do a lot of genuine advocacy work with carers 
or they don't do a lot of generous um, advocacy work with carers because, again, that just wouldn't be what they were, you know, the funding, I don't imagine there'd be funding priorities. They're funded by government mm. to do that. I think they probably do a lot of marketing and recruitment and, you know, some good training and some other stuff. But a genuine advocacy body, I mean, that's why I'm assuming all you know, your union bodies are, are always separate, completely independent, right? I would challenge that, but let's not go there. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean... That, that's a political thing yeah. that we don't want to... But I yes. agree with the independence needed and yes. the, you know, the reality is that people... Or I guess governments yes. again putting money into into something like this, and then when there's also a reliance on that, then that that can sway our judgment. Yeah. Sometimes for good, sometimes not for good. Yes. And I again, I also yes. get with this openness around thinking about the social workers, the case workers yes. that you know they're working in organisations that are funded from the government, state based on the placements. Then you've got in New South Wales Department of Community and Justice, yes. which is the government arm that. It is dependent on relationships as yeah. to where they may go to first to say, "Hey, yeah. I really like Marcy. We've got yeah. we're, you know we play whatever yeah, together, yeah, yeah. and I'm going to ring yeah. Marcy first. Yes, and you yeah, just yeah. happen to work yeah. for whatever. Yeah. So there's all the relationships the thing we yeah. understand. There's dynamics, and all yes. it all works in there. But yeah. um, there's so many. But again, I've got no idea how to solve these yeah. things. There's so many competing priorities. Like we need money. There's needed to be funding and stuff like that. And even I guess with do we need We're, money? Do well, we, I mean, yes, money is going to solve a lot of things, but I tell you what, if we just use the money what with, that we had differently, I think we could go a long way. It's funny you say that in, <laughs> in, in these very seats yeah. when we last did an in-person interview, yeah. our uh, guest, Ashcan, and we were talking about being, and he's written some unbelievable yeah. books on that, but just if funding is used yeah. in the right way and, and attacking the problems, not just throwing money at yes. some glorified thing, then there's lots of things that can be solved, whether that's poverty and hunger and foster caring and stuff like that. But it does take people with the impetus, the leadership, like from what yourself are doing, what Nathan, your brother's doing, helping, and those in the community that are latching onto this, the foster carers in the community that are starting to look at that and share information yes. and we can start to look at it's elements. Collaboration. It takes collaboration. Doesn't everything. This is this is what it takes, right? Like I'm learning about lean methodology in this work that I'm doing here. What does it mean to be lean? I'm pretty sure again Nathan would sit here if I could be his voice as well and say to you, you can achieve everything on a, on a shoestring. Again, if you do it our main our best resource is expertise and know-how and bringing them together. It's these divisive cultural forces that push everyone apart. Mm. I think they're, they're some of the bigger problems we're trying to resolve here because I'm excited by the bits that I have learned in product development land in terms of thinking, oh, we need heaps, heaps of money. You know, it makes me think, oh my gosh, like, you know, and probably actually some of the other things we're trying to resolve in terms of collaborating when you've got those really diverse values and belief sets, that might even be harder to resolve than a money issue. But if we could, if we could bring, if we could find a way to bring people together. You have. There's a North Star. Yes. Right? So that's the, yes. that's that collective goal that people of yes. all shapes, sizes, cultural diversities, whatever that yes. is, that is focused on achieving. If they're 
part of the foster care community and, yeah. and understanding what Hatch Project's about. Absolutely. Bringing carers together and interesting you raise that because we very much have an evolving kind of model when it comes to how do we permeate the change that needs to happen with the sector, knowing that the sector as a player is such a big part of the reason that foster carers are struggling, right? So how? And really, initially, it was kind of on that side of like that lobbying or the, you know, more bureaucratic angle, you know, it was kind of power with power. You know, we talked about a scaled foster carer community with thousands of carers in it and what power that could wield. But as as we trek our way through this, you know, through this process and I get more feedback and I think differently about things and I get, you know, what our latest model looks like definitely is a much more collaborative approach. So it's saying, well, what does a scaled and mobilised community of foster carers have to offer the sector? And it's a very different, it's a business proposition. It's a playing chip. Now, I'm still trying to figure out, you know, what that is. You know, the easy versions would be something about recruitment or something about training or support or, you know, my blue sky here is that what we have to offer, what Hatch Project has to offer the broader um, out-of-home care system sector is know-how. It's expertise. And it's expertise that they need because we have, there is a growing crisis right now, a recruitment and retention crisis. It is bubbling. It is being, in fact, the later, the new um, minister, Kate Washington, flagged this need. Um, she blamed the last government, of course, but she's flagged this need in terms of going, um, we need to address a, a carer recruitment and retention problem. And what do we have, what does this community have that that they need? Well, there's expertise as to why that's a problem. You've got to ask the people with the problem who have the problem. And you know what Hatch Project kind of is in that in that model? We are simply a mechanism by which that that exchange can take place. So that's a bit of blue sky, I think, in terms of I've been told it can't be done. I've been told that that, that system that is survives based on control will never be ripe enough for this sort of implementation. I don't know that I totally agree. I don't know. This is very new territory. But I do think that harvesting expert know-how within the community you know, which you as a member yourself, what a resource to be able to go to currently 100 foster carers, but then as it grows more broadly and get expert know-how about issues that only foster carers know about. That's kind of what I'm thinking. Yeah. Look, I I, I agree. There's so many angles. We spoke yeah. some off camera before, but the reality is that when you've got a community which is what you've got. Sky's, sky is the limit. Absolutely. Sky and is the, the limit. more people that get attached to that community, yes. more foster carers that yes. get attached to the community, then the greater opportunity that brings, whether that's sort of resourcing, which comes back into funding side of things. And, and again, the, the whole, my understanding yes. and belief around social enterprise is yes. if we can create the perfect social enterprise model where it's self-funding yes. through yes. some of these resources yes. and stuff like that, then how good is that? Yes. I did say to you when we met some yeah. time ago that, you know, I think that yours and maybe Nathan's thinking yeah. around this utopia of the community driving itself completely. Yeah. yeah. I don't believe in that. Yes. I, there always has to be a leader and even it's it's a moderator or or some resource yes. sort of driving that. Yes. But absolutely the community yeah. can rally around each other and the work of the 
administrator, moderator and stuff becomes far less. You don't have to do a lot of the motivating because that's been built and you're using those strategic relationships and stakeholders to drive more of that. That's where I think it it sits moving forward because to me, that's what any community that I'm currently involved in or have been involved in, that's that's the flow of that's it. the community. Yeah. yeah, I'm really keen to actually learn more off you in that space too because, yeah, I, I, I do know, I, yeah, I think I do know what you're talking about. Well, let's look at this podcast yeah. as an example. Yeah. So we've got a community, okay, and there's a community on YouTube, there's a community on the various audio platforms, yeah. and there's socials where a community is attached. Yeah. If we stop producing the podcast or stop putting out content, where's that community going to go? It's not going to just yeah, there has to be people a aren't going to jump in automatically kind. and say, "Oh, yeah. we'll start creating content yeah. for the console." You get my point. Like there needs to always be the the driver yeah. of that and the leader of that process. And but again, as the community grows, you do want it to be self sustaining and feeding itself. And you're seeing stuff, so you're gathering ideas and and you're creating resource or providing more support around these things because this is what the community is saying. So. You know, in our analogy around continuous improvement, you're even more taking the voice of the customer, listening this, to the customer think, to drive that. And I think that utopian idea, you know, all that idea, it, it has a lot more to do with what we don't want than what we do want. And we don't want to mimic current hierarchies that create power imbalances yeah. and that undermine relationships. We do want sustainability in terms of resources and that sort of thing and how it can function and a community approach there. And we also do want to make sure that the people who have the expertise and the know-how and the problems remain the central voice of the project. So I think, and it's interesting because when when I kind of say it that way, it's like, yeah, yeah, when, when you talk about that um, autonomous sort of community style. It's almost like that's our version of trying to get a solution to those other three things. But but I hear you. And I think the biggest evidence for me of that idea of needing leadership is that the current climate in this in this carer community and and beyond, it it's been there for a long time, but nothing has really happened with it, right? So carers have felt disenfranchised. Carers have felt like there is a change that is needed. They've wanted a voice and they haven't known where to find it. And there hasn't been a way forward. So I suppose, or it's been hard to find a way forward. So I suppose in that sense, um, Hatch has led by providing, I guess, this this opportunity or this this idea or this this way, this mechanism, you know, and there's some leadership there. And and yes, I do hear you in terms of facilitation and moderation because right now I know that if I was to step out of the picture, for example, I don't know that without some kind of leadership in place, we would continue on course towards our goals, you know, because they're, they're quite strategic and they, you know, so I, I am hearing those things and perhaps neither Nathan and I are overly comfortable with the uh, title of leader, which is strange because we're both probably held many leadership positions in our life, but uh, it's not always a comfortable title as well, depending on how you, how you define it. What sort of feedback are you getting from foster carers within the mm. Hatch Project community? about the, the actual value you're offering, how you're helping itself. them. No, less about yeah. the, I'm, I'm yeah. less interested in the, the tool. The tool's yeah. great. It's, it's yeah. a great community yes. platform. Yes. But what they're getting out of it currently, like how it's making them yeah. feel, is it the, the general, there's engagements and it's good engagement what I'm yes. seeing. So I'm, I'm, to me, that says there's yes. some positive, there is positivity and they're getting something good, but what are they telling you? 
You know, that's interesting because that's not something that I have asked explicitly. That might be tapping into some of my own fear on I'm I'm not ready for uh, that in case the feedback isn't what I want and need it to be. I mean, we're we're measuring, you know, that sort of stuff in terms of engagement. We know we're getting more carers. We know carers are becoming more engaged. They're using the platform more. I haven't, it's not like I've, you know, polled within the community and said, what is this community giving you? Oh gosh, that sounds silly now that I've said that out loud, doesn't it? I haven't actually asked that question. <laughs> so Something we can ask moving forward. Actually, after this thing, I can get on the app and say, hey, Oh, yeah, community yeah, yeah. members, that'd, what that'd are we getting great. out of this? That'd be great. Just yeah, that, that'll make me feel less vulnerable. If you can do that on my behalf, please. I will take um, that on board and I will deliver. I will do that. Yes. Yeah. I think my assumption, you know, it it um yeah, it tells me that I would still expect some mixed feedback. I certainly hope that people are saying they're getting a lot out of the experience. And yeah, I mean, I think the you know, an opportunity to drive towards these missions and goal this mission and goals. And but we've got I think the product in itself, I'm just, I know the plans that we have in place to do things like diversify the content in there, for example, so that it's also a very engaging place. And it always needs to be that place where um, members can come in and, and talk about problems and have a place to offload. In fact, our number one, when we're designing it, number one thing we said this needs to do, it needs to, it needs to listen and by doing so value the carer. You know, that was our number one. So the fact that actually we've got some members or, you know, as a community as a whole, you do get that sense that, you know, there's talking about problems and hardships and pain points that actually in some way kind of ticks the box of what we said we wanted it to do. (laughs) You know, we created that safe community, but I do foresee it as a space that's also um, providing more um, education is what we want to do. You know, in time, we want to um, more resource. I mean, I've got some really sort of exciting ideas about upskilling or providing education around emotional emotional intelligence or systems thinking or whatever we want to call this space. We know that carers are not getting this. There is not a training like this out there anywhere. So what better place to kind of really learn. If someone threw up me the other day, have you heard of micro accreditation processes? Imagine if you're providing some kind of accredited service. I'm not saying that's what we're going to do. This is a solution. We haven't thought it through, but do you know what I mean in terms Mm. of carers then coming out and saying, well, I don't feel anymore that I'm speaking a different language with my caseworker, or I don't feel as vulnerable because now I understand what they're talking about a little bit more. And I understand, you know, my my role in the broader context of the system, you know, because you've got to remember everyone working in the system, they have professional degrees and training in all things system. Carers, mm. carers don't. Mm. Carers have what we need the most, which is the caring role, right? The caring credentials. Mm. But unfortunately, to work in this system, you kind of have to understand to how it, it works. Yep. Yeah. So that kind of work, yeah, there's a lot we want to do on the platform. So maybe I'm sitting here going, it's not what it needs to be yet. And I'm a perfectionist. But I'm going to ask that question. Your last comment has taken me to a question I wanted to ask. Mm. And I think now is the right opportunity. Mm. What hurdles do you see? So you, mm. you, this startup, it's not a startup now. You made that comment somewhere that I read. It's not a startup now. We've been going for three years. Great. You've mentioned early in your journey around that, what was the desire? There was a bit yeah. of like up you to start with. Yeah. 
but now that's <laughs> so you're developing. That was a Marcy. That's a Marcy issue. Yes, yeah. And look, we all have that yes. element. We want to we yes. want to say you know stuff. You I can yes. do this. That's yes. a that's a if that drives yeah. the belly for a while, then yes. great. What hurdles do you see though in your own development mm. as far as taking the Hatch Project forward? Yeah. Ah, oh, gosh. I have hopefully jumped. You know, hope I'm over them. So many personal hurdles to get where I am now with this project. It has been the steepest, most prickly learning journey of my life. And it has really triggered my my vulnerabilities in in so many ways. I am more confident than I have ever been, you know, and I'm seeing things really differently. So I'm grateful for for everything that has brought me to the point, you know, and 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 how challenging so many of, of those hurdles were. Because, I mean, I think I turned around to, you know, say, you know, to quit like 10 times over and Nathan's like, don't be ridiculous. And so, you know, I, no doubt there's going to be, there's going to be many more hurdles for me, but I don't know, what, what do I foresee? I just think I'm just, I have to remain committed to my own self-development in this space. I mean, yeah, I don't ever know what that looks like, but just really open, you know, well, thankfully we created a platform that provides feedback. <laughs> so that's fairly obvious. Like I get feedback and I'm going to respond to it. And one of those hurdles that I re- I refer to, however, previously would be being able to re- manage that feedback. You know, that's the hard stuff. The technical side of like, oh, you know, that feedback is now there for me. It's like the the leader, if I'm going to call myself a leader, the person kind of facilitating right now, how I perceive that, how I interpret it and what I do with it, that's the hard stuff. And I think these challenges that I've been faced with personally and that my brother has and, you know, other people that have made up probably part of a, you know, sort of broader team, that that there's a reason why we kind of had to go through them to get to where we are now. And in fact, People say, you've been doing this project for three years and what have you been doing? Because you only launched the product in March this year. That was when the pilot launched. Yeah, it's a very triggering question as well. And I sit there and I'm like, because for the first year of this project, it it was all about me. There was a massive journey I went on personally. I mean, in concrete terms, I went back to uni to learn about social entrepreneurship mm-hmm. and innovation and social impact mm-hmm. and leadership. But there was so much that I had to get over, so many personal issues and that I'd kind of learnt and picked up through my time working in the system myself, but, you know, around some of my anxieties and my perfectionisms. I mean, agile methodologies and perfectionism, like what, you know, I don't know whether to call this a match made in heaven or like, it's like, you know, they're, they're enemies because you cannot be a perfectionist and be, and be agile. Agile is about quick delivery of prototypes and feedback. Both of those things for a perfectionist are extreme. You don't deliver prototypes. You work on something for 10 years and you never deliver it because it's never good enough, right? Yep. So not lean. <laughs> we definitely didn't have the resource to do that. Um, so learning how to just step off a ledge and go, okay, I'm just going to put it put it out there and see what people think. And even even the you know prototype of the community, this is kind of pilot phase, like this is phase one, the, the platform or the product itself, you know, we have grand plans for, you know, but 
that first day of that launch was absolutely terrifying. It it felt like I was walking off the side of a cliff. You know, so much personal evolution, you know, I think in in a very positive way in that first year. And I tease Nate because I say, you know, you're funding like just me and my personal development. And I think he kind of does know. He's walked this journey a bit himself. Yeah. But I also think that if you're going to lead in this space, self is, it has to be, it's fundamental, right? You know, I don't know. This is your space, but that's how I feel about it. Like it's fundamental. Leadership is all about self-development. Yeah. One of my mentors says to me, it's not about you, but it is about you. Yeah. Have to be improving yourself all the time. Yeah. And then that helps make it more about others. It's been really obvious to me on this journey because there are times when it feels wrong until I make personal gains. And that's a real struggling feeling. You know, I'm working through some stuff. I'm calling people. I've been amazingly, I've had amazing sort of mentors and people around me that I'll call and it'll just be like, I've got to, I've got to move through this personal thing or otherwise Hatch isn't going to survive, you know. <laughs> I've got to move through this thing. So, And to put even more burden yeah. on you, there's a lot of people relying on you now. You get yep, that, don't yep, you? Yep, yep, yep. No, so I got that. Yep, that's fun for me every <laughs> single day. And, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll leave you yes, contemplate that. Yes, yes. You mentioned a word just before. It's confidence. Mm. And this brings us to always our last question mm. on the cultural leadership. So you said that you have become a more confident leader. Yes. What is this one thing that has helped you become a more confident leader? It's the doing. I just had to do. I had to take the step that so much of my personal journey and workplace journey has been shrouded by this cloud of fear and and anxiety. No, no, you know, not due to any big traumas in my personal life. It's just been the way that I've often been. And I have been an avoider. So the doing has been, has made me confident. The one thing that I refused to do or I avoided for years and years and years is like the thing that liberates me. Do you know what I mean? It's like, do it, just take that next step, take that next step. And then I took it and then I got feedback about it and it's okay and it didn't didn't hurt so much. I'm okay. And so I just do a little bit more and then I do a little bit more and then I can actually see a pathway behind me now. And I look back at it and I feel now I feel a bit validated that I've done something good because I can see the evidence, you know, but none of that would have happened if I didn't take that first step. I don't know. I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't necessarily have that. Like I think entrepreneurs are usually there. They've got this predisposition to do and they're risk take takers and, you know, maybe really courageous in that way. And that is not my MO. It's just not. So every time that I have just just done something, and these are really small things too, um, I build confidence, you know, that I can, I, I have done before, so I can do again. And then I just, my confidence just comes from the trajectory that we're seeing of the project itself. Like we have goals, we have measurable goals and we're ticking them and I'm still surprised all the time. I'm like, oh, we ticked that goal. We made that goal and we ticked it, you know. So, you know, I get confidence from the fact that it seems we're on the right track, you know, we're doing some good stuff. There there are some big some big hurdles still, but yeah, but I think it's going to be a a, a growing confidence. I growing a growing confidence a hundred percent. And I and I really want to highlight the fact that that initial investment from my from my brother because this is just never given anywhere for this purpose. He did actually have to kind of like invest in me and risk that 
self-development journey for me first, you know, and, and he, maybe there was some knowing cause he did it. He actually did this himself. He walked this a little bit, but you don't get this opportunity anywhere. And what I know about the, you know, wicked problem space or social entrepreneurship, and it's starting with the leader, that mindset stuff, cultivation as a starting point, you, you do invest in people first and there's no funding out there for that. Do you know what I mean? Like you might get someone who's already there, but I don't know. I'd say most people, depending on the journey, have some work to do themselves. Who invests in that? <laughs> Marcy, you know? I could not think of a perfect place to finish yeah, right. the conversation. <laughs> in regards to Nathan, your brother, so lucky again that he's got the financial resource to create that initial investment yes. in Hatch. Absolutely. Yes. I will have plans to yep. interview Nathan at some point in time. Please do. Um, yes. The reason why I didn't, yep. it, it was easy to potentially arrange for yourself and Nathan yep. to be on together. Yes. Uh, the reason why I felt that wasn't the best thing was because you've owned, you, each of you have your own worth. You, you are different people and you both, both bring enormous value to the things and the world that you're playing in. So I wanted to give you your space and Thank I want to give Nathan his space. So um, Thank you. it's a pleasure that our paths have crossed through some other mutual arrangement. Again, relationships, right? Um, really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for being such a fantastic Thank guest on The Cultural so Leadership. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I'm, I'm disappointed that we didn't talk more about your foster caring journey, actually. So I feel you need to do that on another, on another podcast. This is our media yeah. landscape. We can talk about whatever okay. we like. So right. that is definitely something that's, that's going to happen cards, into the yes, future. Absolutely. But thank you for having me. And yeah, it's been such a privilege to get to know you. Running a social enterprise focused on revolutionising the foster care system in Australia must be one of the toughest leadership challenges going around. Thankfully, people like Marcy and her brother Nathan love a challenge. These were my three key takeaways from my conversation with Marcy. My first key takeaway, confident leaders give others a voice. They create an environment where people feel safe to speak up. There's enormous value in shared wisdom and diverse perspectives and experiences. Giving others a voice enhances the opportunity for this value to be utilised for better decisions, leading to better outcomes. My second key takeaway, confident leaders have limiting beliefs. Even the most confident leaders live with doubts that stem from past experiences. However, what sets these leaders apart is their ability to acknowledge these beliefs, challenge them, and seek growth. This self-awareness and willingness to evolve make them more relatable and more effective leaders. My third key takeaway, confident leaders own their worth. They recognize the value they bring to the table, not out of arrogance, but from a deep understanding of their skills, experiences, and contributions. By embracing their worth, they inspire others to acknowledge and champion their own unique strengths. This self-assuredness builds a culture of empowerment and mutual respect. So in summary, my three key takeaways were, confident leaders give others a voice. Confident leaders have limiting beliefs and confident leaders own their worth. Let me know your key takeaway on YouTube or at thecultureofleadership.com. Thanks for joining me and remember, the best outcome is on the other side of a genuine conversation. Thanks for listening to The Culture of Leadership. You can access the show notes at thecultureofleadership.com. If you enjoy the show, please follow, rate and give a review on your favorite podcast platform.
Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI powered help bot, Our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite.